Well, I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to Exodus uh, 26. We're going to do something a little bit different tonight. <laughs> it's a long chapter <laughs> dealing with one big subject. And instead of reading it all the way through and then rereading it uh, as we look at it, I'm just going to start by reading it in sections, three sections in particular, noticing the outer covering, then the frame, and then the curtains uh, in, the, in between, and then also the, the opening screen on the east side by the entrance. And then we'll just walk through and look at what in the world the Lord is teaching the Israelites uh, by the tabernacle. So let's start reading um, at verse 1, we'll read down through verse 14. And before we do that, uh, let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we know that all Scripture is breathed out by you and is profitable for us. And so we come to a passage like this, oftentimes wondering how it's profitable. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would teach us how it is and also work in us powerfully to purge out sin, to remove from us selfishness and pride and disobedience and to replace that with Christ, putting him on in all his perfection and all of his obedience, that we might be a people who are growing in our holiness. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, so Exodus 26, verses 1 down through 14, and then we'll, we'll make a few comments, then we'll keep reading. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain, that is, in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another, and you shall make fifty clasps of gold, and couple the curtains one to the other with the clasps, so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains shall you make. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. The eleven curtains shall be the same size. You shall couple five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves. And the sixth curtain you shall double over at the front of the tent. You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the second set. You shall make 50 clasps of bronze and put the clasps into the loops and couple the tent together that it may be a single whole. And the part that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And the extra that remains in the length of the curtains, the cubit on the one side and the cubit on the other side, shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and that side to cover it. And you shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and a covering of goat skins on top. Okay, so a lot of details here. This is dealing with basically the tent fabric. That's where Moses is starting or the Holy Spirit is starting. And what I want to highlight here is, again, nothing necessarily significant for 
New Covenant believers, but just the detail that there were basically four layers to the tabernacle. The first layer is verse one, fine twisted linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns with cherubim woven into them. That was the inside layer. So when you walked into it, that's what you saw. It was a beautiful layer. So if you came into the holy place, that would have been lit up on the sides, on the ceiling, and on the other side as well. The second layer is in verse seven, goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. The third layer, verse 14, verse 14 actually has the third and fourth layers, tanned ram skins dyed red, and then goat skins on top. So beauty on the inside and on the outside, just a covering. So when rains and storms come, the stuff on the inside isn't completely destroyed. So by all accounts, just a tent, a tent in the wilderness. Now, Verses 15 to 30 talks about the frame of the tent, what this looks like. You shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits shall be the length of a frame, and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. There shall be two tenons in each frame for fitting together, so you shall do for all the frames of the tabernacle. You shall make the frames for the tabernacle, 20 frames for the south side and 40 bases of silver you shall make under the 20 frames two bases under one frame for its two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, 20 frames, and there are 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame, and two bases under the next frame. And for the rear of the tabernacle, westward, you shall make six frames, and you shall make two frames for corners of the tabernacles in the rear, they shall separate, they shall be separate beneath, but joined at the top at the first ring. Thus shall it be with both of them. They shall form the two corners. And there shall be eight frames with their bases of silver, 16 bases, two bases under one frame, two bases under another frame. You shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle, five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the side of the tabernacle at the rear westward. The middle bar halfway up the frames shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold and shall make the rings of gold for holders for the bars and you shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. So again, there's the wooden frame covered in gold around which the tent fabric would be stretched all four layers. And the tabernacle was just a mobile tent for the Israelites while they were wandering in the wilderness. You remember when they entered the promised land, David said, hey, I dwell in a pretty nice house. I'd love to make one for the Lord. And the Lord said, nope, it will not be you to do it. Your son Solomon will do it. Then we go from tabernacle to temple. But it's really the same thing. So here's the start of it, though. While the Israelites are moving around, they have a tabernacle that can all be taken apart. All the wood pieces can be taken apart. The layers can be pulled off. Everything can be carried while you go from one place to the next. And notice as well, the tabernacle, it faced east. The rear is called the westward part. So the people were east of the tabernacle. The entrance to the tabernacle was on the east side. Now remember, the tabernacle has cherubim in it a lampstand, which reminds us of the tree of life. It has the place where God dwells above the mercy seat. All those are elements of the Garden of Eden. Where was the entrance to Eden? That's now barred, east of Eden. So the tabernacle is a small picture of the Garden of Eden. 
And when you approached it, you would have entered on the east side. You can't get back in the Garden of Eden on the east side because there's flaming swords that will kill you. But this is a different garden, as it were, where you can actually come in. Now, there's restrictions, but you can actually get in this garden. So God is slowly uh, uh, growing his people in their knowledge of him and how to approach him. And then one more section here. This is dealing with the, the big curtain, the curtain capital C between the most holy place and the holy place, and also with the front door, the screen basically on the east side. So you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. This is verse 31. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony of the most holy place, and you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table, and you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold, and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. Okay, so the most holy place and the holy place are divided by a curtain with cherubim in it. And there's also a screen, we'll just call it the front door, right? A cloth front door that you would walk through to get into the holy place. And when you walked in, you would see cherubim interwoven on the inner lining. You'd also see cherubim right in front of you uh, on the curtain that divides the holy place and the most holy place. And that's the tabernacle, a rather impressive desert tent. <laughs> if you add up all the gold and the silver and the bronze and the tapestry, you're looking at a roughly $100 million, $100 million house of the Lord in the middle of the wilderness. That would be the modern day equivalent. So if you wanted to see heaven in the wilderness, you just go to the tabernacle. You're going to see some incredible beauty. It's basically a bunch of leather housing tons of gold that is fashioned in such a way as to teach the people of Israel who God is. Now, we're in the new covenant. We are, we are roughly 3,000 years uh, on this side of uh, the tabernacle. We are 2,000 years on this side of Christ. What in the world do we do with the structure? The first thing I want us to notice about it is that the dwelling place of God is the most beautiful place on earth. It's the place where you want it to be. And it's why David could say in Psalm 84, 1, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. So if you were in the old covenant and you were a believer, you would want to be at God's house. In the midst of the wilderness, all the suffering and the pain and the blahness of wandering through the wilderness and the desert, there was one little beacon of light that brought a ton of joy. I just want to go to the house of the Lord. It's beautiful. It's incredible. It's lovely to behold and to be in the midst of. The temple was also a place of instruction where people came to learn of God. So Psalm 48, 9, we have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. 
So the Israelites would get together, they would worship, and while they're there in the midst of the temple now, tabernacle, the days of Solomon, think, days of David, they're thinking about God's steadfast love and learning about God's steadfast love through the sacrificial system and what the priests would have taught them through the Torah. Psalm 73, 16 to 17, when I thought how to understand the prosperity of the wicked, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and I discerned their end. So again, you come to the tabernacle, you learn about God, you learn about this world. How can God, are the wicked really prospering? Is my life really a waste of time? Have I served the Lord in vain? Is there no profit or benefit? We go to the house of God, we go to the tabernacle, we discover that if you don't have a sacrifice, your end is destruction. So it is good to be a child of God. Even if the wicked prosper way more than we do, it is good to be a child of God. The tabernacle taught the Israelites that. The tabernacle also communicated by its design two very opposite things. And I'm, we're going to spend a little bit of time speaking about this. The tabernacle was God's house and God's house communicated, come in, you're welcome to come in. All are welcome to come in. And it also said, be careful or don't come in or keep out. So remember the tabernacle was lit up round the clock. The golden lampstand was burning. So you're in the wilderness. It's nighttime. Through that screen, whatever holes there are, and even through the cloth, you're going to see what? There's going to be a light shining. That will be the holy place where the golden lampstand is burning. And we might think this is no big deal, right? Um, what is leaving the light on for someone in need? It means you're welcome to come in. We anticipate your arrival. You remember Tom Bodette, Motel 6? <laughs> Probably even younger generations might remember that. I'm Tom Bodette from Motel 6. We'll leave the light on for you. A huge slogan in the 80s and the 90s. And it was meaningful. Why? Because when you leave a light on, it tells somebody, hey, welcome in. Sometimes if you have company coming over, we probably still do that today. Leave the front lights on so they can see. Leave the garage light on if they come through that. Leave a light on in a hallway. Leave a light on in their bedroom and they can just follow the lights. Shut them off as they go and hit the hay even though you're sleeping. A light on means welcome. And so in God's house, this light is burning. It's a continual reminder that, that you're welcome to uh, come in. That you are welcome here. And also the table is always set on the table of the showbread, the bread of presence. There's always 12 loaves on it. And it says again, welcome home. This is my house, God is saying, welcome. There's light shining here and there's food to eat in my house. I can remember coming home from college. I'm guessing a lot of you have these memories as well. My mom would say there's food in the pantry, help yourself. There's some leftover lasagna you can heat up. There's some Bismarck's from the bakery. We might have an email conversation about this beforehand. All that communicated what to me? Welcome home, come on in, raid the fridge, house is yours, eat whatever you want. That is a great way of saying you're home. We want you here. So the tabernacle communicated welcome to God's house, but it also communicated the opposite keep out. Don't come in unless you're coming as the right person in the right way. And so when you walked into the house, you discovered a massive 15 foot tall by 15 foot wide curtain 
which separated the most holy place from the holy place, and the curtain had cherubim woven into it, which reminds you, okay, these are guardians, time to wake up and pay attention. They reminded you that you can't come all the way in. You can, as it were, stand on the front porch, or you can come into the entryway. The court of the Gentiles will say is the front porch, holy place, you're in the front entryway, but coming in to sit down in the living room and really be home, coming and raiding the pantry and coming all the way in, that's, that's a little too far. Stay out. So only one man once per year could enter into that place and only with blood. So God was both welcoming and dangerous, both the one who welcomes all, yet the one whom we must approach carefully lest you die. And Tim Chester says this about it. As you stood before the curtain, home was so close and so far away. Where you needed to be and longed to be was both showcased and blocked off. The tabernacle was so full of promise and also so full of danger. And then you come to Matthew 27, 51 of the new covenant and discover something remarkable. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is when Jesus was on the cross. Wow. And Matthew records, the Holy Spirit records, that the curtain was torn from top to bottom. Now, this was likely by many accounts like a four-inch curtain. There was no human being. You could tie ten horses to each side of the bottom of this curtain and tell them to go. And they, would not tear the, they wouldn't tear the curtain from bottom to top. The fact that it was torn from top to bottom tells us God's the one doing it. This is indeed a miracle And there is something radically different now about the new covenant, which old covenant believers could not enjoy. And if you were a priest on that day serving in the temple and saw this, you would have been alarmed and excited, alarmed that now you have to find a new job. You got to start doing job applications and figure out what you're going to be doing next. But excited because the curtain tore and you're still alive. I shouldn't be living. I have just seen the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, I should be struck dead. There's now a new way in. And the author to Hebrews, Hebrews 10 verses 19 and 20 writes this, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. The Old Testament sacrifices, which were offered over and over and over again, communicated a constant reminder to people, you're sinful, be careful in how you approach God. When Jesus Christ came and the temple curtain was torn, that communicated your sin has been removed. This is the lamb and all sin has now been paid for, not no longer foreshadowed, (laughs) but it has actually been paid for because Christ is the substance. And now you can have full assurance of faith and even confidence to enter into the holy places. If you were a Jew in first century uh, Palestine, this would have been mind-blowing. How can I go all the way in? Jesus went in. He tore the curtain down. You now have access. So now in Christ, we are fully welcomed in. Every believer not just the priests. One author wrote this, the outer court of Gentiles was nullified by Jesus drawing all nations by faith. 
The court of women was nullified by Jesus making male, female, Jew, and Greek equal heirs of God, Galatians 3.28. And the priestly courts were nullified by his consecrating all Christians as a holy priesthood, 1 Peter 2.9. Throughout his ministry, Jesus demolished barriers symbolized in the temple apparatus. The inner curtain was simply the last barrier. I want to hit two things home here. The language in Hebrews 10 of confidence. We draw near to God, not in fright or concern for our ritualistic performance. Did we do everything right? Are we going to be struck dead? But we draw near to God now in the new covenant in confidence that we are accepted by him because Jesus spilled his blood and his blood is way better than the blood of animals. So we can have confidence in our relationship with the Lord, a confidence that old covenant believers couldn't have. They could have confidence we can have more. Our confidence has increased in the new covenant because the substance has come. And also assurance of salvation. Notice the language Hebrews 10. It's not just assurance, but full assurance of faith. This is tremendous. It's not that believers in the old covenant never had assurance, but in the new covenant now, we can have full assurance. Does God love me? Will he deal with my sin? Will he pay for all of it? Can I have a relationship with him that is absolutely secure? And when that curtain was torn down, it was God's way of saying through Jesus Christ, yes, you can. Through him, you come all the way in. Another thing I want us to notice, or I think the tabernacle teaches us, is that true home is where God dwells. So the tabernacle was God's house in this world. It was the place where God dwelt. It was the place where the Garden of Eden was depicted. Everyone would have understood, hey, this is where Adam and Eve were. This was our true home. And now God's showing us the way back home when he's teaching us the tabernacle. The tabernacle is where people want it to be because we want to be home. Then when Jesus comes, we've noticed this before, this, everybody will make this connection quickly. God fulfilled the tabernacle with his son. In John 1.14, we're told the word became flesh and tabernacled or tented among us. And we have seen his glory. So the tabernacle in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this tabernacle wasn't built with gold and silver, but was God's only begotten son coming into the world. This tabernacle was made by God and of the finest quality, his one and his only son. So Jesus Christ is the ultimate reality that the tabernacle pointed to, which is why he referred to his own body as the temple, but now Jesus is no longer with us. So where is God's temple? Where does God dwell with his people now? And in the new covenant, some Christians believe that God dwells in church buildings. And so if you walk into certain denominations, if you walk into even uh, fairly orthodox denominations, people will place a high emphasis on their building, decorating it to the hilt, uh, making it look pristine, pouring tons of money in it because they believe that is a place where God dwells. And Stephen in his sermon in Acts 7 verse 48 said, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. 
So the fact of the matter, and what the New Testament makes crystal clear, is that there's no building, not a temple, nor a church building where God dwells. The temple is Jesus Christ. But in the New Covenant, Jesus Christ came, and now he's gone. So where is God's temple now? Well, what's fascinating is if you read 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6, we're told that no longer is God's temple with us in the building, tabernacle temple, or in Jesus Christ, but now God's temple is in us. We're the temple. 1 Corinthians 3 speaks of the church as a whole as God's temple, and 1 Corinthians 6 speaks of individual believers as temples of the Holy Spirit. But there's more to the story. So right now, we get to enjoy being God's temples, but it gets better. Hold on here. John 14, 2, in my father's house are many rooms, Jesus said, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And then if you flip over to Revelation 21, here's some verses from it. Verse three, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Revelation 21, verses 22 and 27, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So heaven is the home that we will all one day inhabit. It's the place where God is. Abraham looked forward to this city. Moses looked forward to this. Sarah looked forward to this. Rahab, Ruth, David, all the Old Testament saints are looking forward to this and have looked forward to this, even as we do. The time where we will be back in God's presence and we will be dwelling with him face to face in person. The tabernacle teaches us that for true Christians, home is with the Lord in the new Jerusalem. That is where we all want to head. Now, just a side note here. How is it even possible that we get back into God's presence, dwelling with him? How, how is there a way back? And the way back in is because of what Jesus Christ did for us. He actually left home. He left the dwelling place of God to come down to this earth and be treated like a common criminal in order to take us home to dwell with the Lord forever. So the fact that we're getting back into fellowship with God and to dwelling with God, the fact that we're getting back into his presence, the fact that we're having restored to us what Adam and Eve lost in the Garden of Eden, the fact that that's happening is all because of Jesus Christ. He's the one who's making this possible. God has made this possible through his son. And so as we look forward to our heavenly home, we ought always to keep ever in our minds, yeah, I get to go back home. I get to be in perfect sinless fellowship with God because Christ left that behind. He was forsaken, kicked out of the home, as it were, by his father, signing up for that work so that I could be brought back in. That is unbelievable that we have a savior willing to do that for people like you and me who had become worthless, fallen in sin and enemies of God. Now, I want to bring this home a little bit there's, you'll probably recognize a bunch of these phrases. There is embedded in the human soul the desire to get to home. And there's a bunch of sayings out there which I was trying to amass and 
putting them together, uh, listen to this, home is where the heart is, right? We, we all recognize that, we probably said it, which tells us that home is a place filled with love. That's often what we mean by that. No one realizes how beautiful it is to travel until he comes home and rests his head on his old familiar pillow. So home in that phrase is a place of rest. Home is where love resides. Memories are created, friends always belong, and laughter never ends. So home is a place where everything is enjoyable and welcoming. In this home, we do second chances, we do real, we do mistakes, we do I'm sorry's, we do loud really well, we do hugs, we do together best of all. So home is a place where grace reigns, where we can be ourselves, and where there is intimacy and friendship. And one more, the ache for home lives in all of us, the safe place where we can go as we are and not be questioned. So home is where we are loved unconditionally. A lot of these are quotes or ideas from people who don't even believe, but it just illustrates the soul's desire to be home, to be in a place where we're no longer judged, where we're loved unconditionally, where we have incredible intimacy and fellowship and fun and enjoyment. That is what people are looking for. That is what God has provided us in Christ. There are some people trying to create this on this earth. We can even fall into that category in our sin when we idolize, hey, I just want this to be a really comfortable place, the most comfortable place possible. I want to have my heaven on earth. We can fall into that trap of thinking that our souls will actually be satisfied if we create the perfect house or the, the perfect home or the perfect family in that home. But all across the world, there are people who are trying to do it and their soul says, it's just still not good enough. I need more. I need a place where I can be permanently, no longer subject to death. I need a place where there is never relational friction ever. I need a place where my soul can be filled up with my maker and he is not angry with me because I'm not in sin. I need a place where there is joy and bliss and singing and praising and glory. I need that is what every human soul says. No matter how great our home life or our houses are, that is what our souls look for. Don't forget as believers that our true home is where God is. Don't lose track of that. Our true home is in Christ and he has gone to prepare a place for us and we will one day be in that true home. We are not there yet. We're not there yet. And then let me close with this. The Israelites were called to not only build the temple, but take care of it. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 and 6, as I mentioned before, calls the church and individual believers the temple of God. So what can we do with this temple? What are we called to do to take care of the church, to take care of the temple, God's temple? Well, in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, we're told, do you not know that you all, plural, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and y'all are that temple. So what the Apostle Paul is making clear is that we have a duty and an obligation to take care of the temple, to take care of the tabernacle, as it were. And in the New Covenant, that looks like taking care of the church. We might ask, well, in the context, what is the Apostle Paul referring to? Well, 1 Corinthians 3, 
back in verse 3, he mentions this. While there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, another I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. They're nothing. They plant, they water, God gives the growth. So Paul says, look, the church is the household of God, the temple of God on this earth, while we wait for the next stage of redemptive history. That's where God dwells, in the church and individual believers. If we're going to do a good job of taking care of the temple, we need to do a good job of taking care of our attitude towards other believers. It's very easy as Christians to say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of John Calvin, I'm of Martin Luther, I'm of Charles Spurgeon, I'm of Martin Lloyd-Jones, I'm of fill-in-the-blank. It's really easy to do that. And Paul says, if you destroy God's temple with this kind of divisiveness, God will destroy that person because God's temple is holy and y'all are that temple. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. So there's a clear call here that we take care of our attitudes toward other believers. So in God's eyes, we're all one household of faith. All believers belong to his son, Jesus Christ. But in our eyes, we can fall into the sin of viewing believers who maybe believe differently than we do, or speak a different language than we do, or do life a little bit differently than we do. We can fall into the category of saying, hey, I'm a cut above you what you are which is destroying God's temple. And so what is your attitude toward God's temple on this earth? Is it lovely to you? Do you love the church? But let me ask that in a different way. Do you love believers? People who belong to the household of faith, do I love them? Do we cherish and prize them? What is our attitude toward them who are members of the household of faith across denominations and languages and nations who will be in heaven singing praises to the Lamb right next to us shoulder to shoulder. What is your attitude toward them? What is my attitude toward them? And then we'll finish with this really briefly. Each believer is also a temple. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with the price, so glorify God in your body. Now, the Apostle Paul is hitting sexual sin in 1 Corinthians 6, but there's a bigger picture here. Every Christian is a temple of the Holy Spirit. How are we taking care of the temple? I'm not asking, do you have a six-pack and big muscles and you're in incredible shape? It's not. Glorify God with your body. That's not what Paul's talking about. Are we using our bodies for sin or for God's glory? Our, our actual bodies. Are we using our hands, our eyes, our feet, our brains, our minds, our hearts, every bit of our bodies that God has given us? Are we using them for sin and thus not taking care of God's temple? Are we using them for his glory? And what the Lord intends is that we use our members for righteousness. We use our bodies for his glory. Beloved, one day we'll be home. One day, having God dwell in us will pale in comparison 
to the next stage of redemptive history when God will be dwelling in our midst and will no longer have any sin and will be face to face with him and it will last forever and there'll be nothing but singing and joy and delight and glory and wonder and amazement and everything our souls right now desire. You and I will be there soon. We will be there very quickly. In the meantime, let us wait patiently for it, look forward to it, and be so thankful that Christ left that behind to secure our entrance into it free of charge. Let's pray.